Cast Ball Show. Brought to you by JohnPLE.com. What the f you think is my opinion of it? I think it was f- put that in. I don't. So the tribe drops its third straight on this trip, six to one to the Rangers. For the Indians, one run on, let's say, one hit. That's all we got. One goddamn hit. Don't worry, nobody's listening anyway. I'm talking about the past, I'm talking about the history, I'm talking about what's great about this game of baseball. There's so much stuff that we can talk about. I would say I wouldn't know, but I would say the reason why they want to pass is baseball going into the highest baseball sport that has gone into baseball, and from the baseball angle, I'm not going to speak of any other sport. Let me start by telling you this. I have never used steroids, period. Jerry, just remember it's not a lie if you believe it. Joe Carter with a three-run homer. The winners and still world champions, the Toronto Blue Jays. And this, he sucks. Well, he's out. He's out. He's out. Yes, sir. is out. Look at, look at this. Brady is out. And uh, Dean is mad. I'm not here to argue about other sports. I'm in the baseball business. It's been run cleaner than any baseball business ever put out in the hundred years of the present time. Sell the team. Oh yeah, welcome aboard John Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. Welcome to the show. Hope you guys enjoy the program. Uh, we're going to do a little bit of World Series talk. Probably a couple things going on with Bases Empty blog, JohnPielli.com, the whole thing. Just a reminder, we keep the program interactive. So just tweet at me, at John underscore Pielli. And like I said, we'll keep the discussion going. And we're going to start out with an interview I played with former Pirates outfielder Chad Hermanson. Now, Chad came up through the Pirates system and had, you know, was very highly touted as a prospect to coming up as an outfielder. He originally came up as an infielder through the minor league system. But, you know, perfect, you know, balance of power and speed. And, you know, the numbers showed throughout the, his minor league career. Unfortunately, when he made it up to the majors, he was unable to establish himself as the player that he proved that he was in the minors. So hopefully you guys enjoyed his spot. Former Major League outfielder Chad Hermanson, who played with the Dodgers, the Blue Jays, the Cubs, and, you know, amongst other teams throughout his playing career and is now a scout for the uh, Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim. So here it is. This is John Piel, I'm here with former Major League outfielder Chad Hermanson. Chad, what's going on, man? I'm, I'm doing well. How are you doing? Oh, pretty good, man. Pretty good. Now, you know, you're doing some work now for the Angels as a scout. Uh, you know, tell us a little bit about, you know, number one, what got you into scouting, and number two, you know, what it, what, what the job you're doing entails. Sure, yeah, I, I've been out of, uh, out of the game for a little while. I uh, was working with a different company for a little bit, and, and it, most ballplayers, that I talked to, you know, once you've kind of been away from the game for a while, you got to get that air, you know, you want to get back into it, and that was certainly, you know, my case. And I started to my resume out to all the DNs and scouting directors around City League Baseball, and the, the Angels came calling, and uh, they needed a guy uh, to cover basically Nevada, Utah, Colorado, and uh, that's essentially the speech that I took on. So I, I lived here in Las Vegas. And, you know, I've been out here for more than 20 years now. And I actually grew up in Salt Lake City, Utah. So I, I get to cover both Nevada, Utah, and Colorado. So it's, it's, uh, I just finished out my first year. Oh, good deal, man. Now, you know, as you're going through it, is there any particular thing you're looking for while you're scouting? Are you scouting for uh, 
let's say future type of players, or are you scouting players that are that are currently on certain teams, or what what exactly are you doing? Yeah, I mean, with you know, being an, being an amateur scout, you're you're obviously scouting all the high school and college players, you know, in your area. Um, you know, typically there, at least in my area, there might be just a, a couple of high school kids that might be ready, uh, you know, to come right out of high school uh, into the professional ranks. Uh, but I, I would say the majority of the players are going to come from college, and so yeah, you're just you know, you're building relationships with college coaches. Um, with everyone that's you know, associated with maybe a program, and you're just and you need to watch baseball. <laughs> Actually, and it's, it's been a lot of fun, and that, you know, we're, we're basically our job is to manage the information that we get from ourselves, we hear from other scouts, our coaches, parents, and just kind of tie that all together and, and uh, you know report that back to our you could say to our superiors, to our scouting director, or our cross checker. And uh, if I find a player that I feel that, you know, can play, I'll have, uh, I'll have my cross-checker come out and do a Facebook ad and as well. And he'll certainly give his opinion. And, uh, and if we like it, I mean, that's what we'll write a report on. And then we'll send it into, you know, into the office. So, uh, you know, they'll do with it what they may. And, and then by the time the draft comes, you know, they start putting all your, all your groupies together. And so you feel like I might go in the draft. about it man and I'll tell you you know you kind of answered part of my my next question but you know when when you're when you're scouting you know kids and you know you're kind of uh you're kind of trying to judge which ones kind of stand out to you are you going a hundred percent off of what you see or exactly how much are you relying on what you hear let's say from from a coach or other other people that are associated with them or maybe the amount of other people that are scouting a particular player yeah no, I, I think it, it all applies. Um, um, you know, maybe an example would be if you have a, a, a pretty good high school player in your area and you, you start talking to coaches, other coaches, maybe other scouts, parents, uh, you might get mixed reviews on what type of kid he is. You know, maybe um, he's very immature, maybe he has family issues, maybe he's in, in trouble, has any drug issues, something like that. Um, but it's your job to find that out. Um, and if you... You know, even if the player is good enough and he might have a ton of baggage behind him, um, obviously the risk is certainly much higher. Um, you know, maybe you might give him not ready or just simply a guy that you're going to pass on, you know, and not be interested in. Um, yeah. So, you know, maybe the guy you, you just watch, say that when you draft it, then he ends up just going to college, you know, then you're going to keep an eye on him to see how he's progressing and maybe even the maturity level rates and, you know, things like that. Um, but, you know, that's one side of the other side. Yeah, you're, you're going to watch all the players. Um, you know, certainly, they pass an eyeball test and uh, just watching how a lot of these kids perform as well. Yeah, now, uh, you know, obviously you were a highly talented prospect yourself. If I'm not mistaken, you were drafted out of high school. How much of the scouting that you do kind of takes you back from when you were a young kid kind of being scouted? Yeah, no, it, it's... I, I think uh, that was a huge thing of me just getting hired, uh, going through that process. My 
the scouting director that hired me, he actually scouted me in high school. Um, so he, that was a, a relationship there in and of itself. Um, but yeah, being able to go through it, understand as a, as a high school kid, you know, yeah, you're going to have scouts and agents and um, all type of people maybe coming into your home asking you questions. Um, you know, I felt like I was mature enough to handle that, that I was ready for it. And I think, you know, certainly some kids are, and, and it is kind of hard to judge uh, a kid when you go into their home because, of course, they're going to be always polite, you know, and they kind of be always on their best behavior. That's why it's important to kind of get a, a gauge on what the kid does on the field, you know, how he, how he interacts with his coaches, how he treats his teammates, you know, little intangibles like that. Uh, but you, you certainly want to uh, get a gauge on level. No, very true. Once again, John Pielli here, former Major League Outfielder Chad Hermanson. Now, you know, you, you came up at, you know, out of high school, you were drafted by the Pirates. You know, tell us a little bit about the process, about, you know, you kind of, you know, making your way through the minor league system. I know, you know, as, as, you, as you came up, you know, you put up some very good numbers in the minors. Yeah. Um, yeah, you know, I was drafted as a shortstop. Uh, I did. I started to playing that. I played shortstop until double A. Uh, but yeah, was uh, was a middle infielder, drafted fairly high. Um, you know, of course, being drafted high comes with uh, the opportunity. Most certainly, to they're going to give you every opportunity to go out there and succeed. And I, I did that you know, pretty well in the minor level. And at the time, um, I got to double A. I always made a lot of errors at shortstop. And, uh, you know, mainly it's mainly throwing errors, and I just had a really hard time with. Um, I think it's more mentally adjusting to those errors, and you know, maybe losing a game for a guy, or you know, maybe I I threw away a ball and uh, made that pitching run run average go up. You know, those things kind of beat at me <laughs> as a yeah. as a young, you know, eighteen, nineteen year old, uh, you know, trying to get better at shortstop, because other guys were suffering because of it. Uh, and it just kind of after a while, I just said, you know what, um, I, you know, I kind of had to look at my team and say, you know, am I really going to make it to the big leagues as a major league shortstop? And I think those doubts, you know, started to creep in. And uh, that's ultimately when I went to the Pirates and said, hey, I would, you know, love to, to move to center field. Where I, you know, I just felt like it was a more natural position for me. And I could utilize my speed a little bit better along with my arm. And uh, that's, that's kind of what happened at the end. And, uh, yeah, there were, there were certainly uh, a lot of good things that happened in the minors, a lot of bad things, just like all players. And, uh, but it's certainly a huge learning experience, that's for sure. Yeah, no question about it. And I tell you, you know, you, you obviously had a little bit of everything. You had the ability to hit for power, the ability to run. You kind of had all the tools to be a, to be a solid major league player. Where where did you find it to be the most troubling, you know, as, as you came through? Obviously, you know, through, through 1998, 1999, as you're going through the minors, you're going out there putting up good numbers. You know, was it was it adjusting to the major leagues? Sure, yeah, it was, you know, um, it's it kind of a story, it's, it's uh, I, I've kind of reluctant at times to talk about it, but it, it kind of is what it is, but after my, let's say, this was my first year in AAA, you know, I was 20 years old, got up there pretty quick, uh, I ended up in about 20 home runs that year, uh, it hit roughly around 260, and I had a lot of strikeouts as well, you know, which kind of always changed the player I was, I was, yeah, certainly, uh, I'm going to strike out much more than I want. Uh, but that happened my first year in AAA as a 20-year-old. Um, then, you know, of course, the Pirates wanted me to cut down on the strikeout. 
And, you know, of course, we all want to do that. And uh, so they're, they're basically stupid. And they need to, you know, whether it's, I think they saw that I had such slight uppercut, so then I wanted to kind of get, you know, flat my swing out maybe a little bit more, more direct to the ball. So I felt like I had, in order for me to do that, I had to kind of think in my head, swing down to the ball. And, and then I got to AAA in my second year and did even better. You know, hit 270, hit 32 home runs. I tied down on my strikeouts. So, you know, things were looking up, you know, and I, I played well enough to, uh, to get my first call up to, to Pittsburgh as, you know, the 21-year-old. Um, and I think where it, it initially kind of switched on me was about my second day in, in Pittsburgh. Uh, my hitting coach at the time uh, suggested that I was – this is, I think it was about my second day in the big leagues. It suggested that I was, I was kind of getting too choppy to the ball, you know, hitting way too much down, maybe over-exaggerating uh, that down swing. And I, I felt in my mind that I had to do that in order for me to make sure I wasn't uppercutting. So, you know, essentially maybe overcompensating. Uh, so, so that adjustment uh, and suggestion was made to me. Uh, so essentially what was said that I was maybe get back to more of a, you kind of use the word uppercut at the time, so I did that, and I felt like I backed out a lot slower, and that adjustment, I think, really screwed me up mentally. Yeah. You know, and I felt like I wasn't, I wasn't the same player. So, you know, I'm, I'm 21 in the big leagues, thinking, you know, I'm just going to tear this thing up, and then I get there, and then uh, an adjustment is, is asked of me, and it just kind of, I think, blew me up mentally, and I, I felt like I spent the next couple of years trying to get back to where I was before. Just doing good for a while, then look at that. You know, and it was just the consistency wasn't there. Yeah, and I'll tell you, you know, throughout your time with the Pirates, you're obviously still highly regarded as a as a top prospect with the organization. You know, tell us tell us a little bit about you know you know continuing you know with the Pirates, you know, and trying to make the adjustments. Did you ever get to a point where you felt like, all right, maybe I should scrap you know the advice that I was given by my hitting coach and trying to go back to the way it was, or you know, what, what are the things that are going through your mind as you're making these changes? Yeah, you know, I, I think when you I think the issue with me was I had been successful a few different ways. You know, I, I was successful with maybe a slight uppercut. I was successful uh, maybe more down swings. So as you kind of go back and forth between those things, I think that's when your head starts, you know, when you don't trust yourself, you know, you're not trusting something. You know, and that's as a player, uh, your job to figure it out. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, that's kind of what I did. I just kind of spent the rest of my career, uh, you know, if I, I did well for a student game as a, as a certain approach, I would stick with it. And then, let's say, if I, you know, went 0 for 10 with a couple strikeouts, then I'm like, oh, maybe I should go back to the other way. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So it's, and I think that's where the, you know, everyone says how important the mental game is when you start kind of essentially getting in your head about seeing things like that. Uh, and thinking more about your swing rather than just kind of seeing and hitting it, uh, you know, I think that's where the league is kind of where I faltered and, and where I just, um, I guess, the time that I worked in in the big leagues didn't figure it out quick enough, you know, for them to, for them to keep me around. And once again, John Fiala here, a former Major League outfielder, Chad Hermanson. Now, you know, you end up being traded in July of 2002 to the Cubs. 
Uh, you know, tell us a little bit about this experience. Did you feel like you were going to be able to get off to a fresh start in Chicago? Uh, yeah, you know, I did. I was, uh, in fact, I, I remember that some of the Pittsburgh reporters saying, um, you know, the ones I heard news of the, like, I was kind of all smiles when I got traded. Because, uh, number one, it was to the Cubs, and I was a huge Cubs fan growing up. Okay. Uh, and it was thinking, great, you know, this is going to be, um, you know, maybe a fresh start for me, a new opportunity. And, uh, and it kind of what it turned out to be, uh, ironically, though, the, I guess it was, two, was it 2002 um, that when that happened. I, I had really bad arm issues. I, I actually ended up kind of playing that whole year with a torn labrum. And so I had to have, uh, you know, cortisone shocks to just kind of get me through that whole year. Uh, which is ironically the only, the whole, only, year in my career that I was in the big league, you know, for the whole year. Um, so I, I got traded there, and, and then once I got there, I kind of remembered, okay, I got Sammy Stilson, right, uh, Corey Patterson, and Spenner, and which is a little blast, uh, I'm never going to play. <laughs> you know, so it was, uh, was kind of one of those things where, well, once I got traded, and I played with a few other teams, so I was, you know, essentially just an extra outfielder. Uh, you know, just trying to, at that point, uh, stay healthy. And then I got hurt eventually and uh, had, had labrum surgery uh, that offseason with the Cubs. And, you know, just kind of never the same player after that. Yeah, and I tell you, you know, you hit on something really important. You know, you come up as a, you know, highly touted prospect. All of your skills seem to come to the forefront. And then, you know, as you get in the major leagues, you know, you, you find yourself in a position where maybe you feel your best opportunity is to be kind of a fourth outfielder type. Uh, tell us a little bit about, about that transition and, you know, what that kind of me meant to you. Yeah, I mean, it's, you kind of, I mean, when you're in the big leagues, you just kind of take it as a, you know, I, I think you, um, you're prepared uh, to play every day, but you just, you just kind of know it's not going to happen. Uh, you know, so, in fact, I remember uh, Bruce Kim, uh, you know, was the, the interim manager at that time. And I believe I was, you know, with the Cubs for probably about three weeks at the time. Uh, just with a pitcher, you know, came in for defense every now and then. And I remember he came up to me and patted me on the shoulder, and we were heading out to Arizona. And, uh, you know, he said, hey, you got, you got Randy Johnson. You know, you got the big unit on, you know, Friday or whatever day it was. And, you know, the court pass was left out of here. So I was, you know, essentially filling him for him. But, like, things like that, you kind of had to, you know, you get a feel for, okay, this is when I might start, you know, so that, you know, I started against the big unit, you know, little things like that. But, yeah, you just, you know, it is what it is. You know, you're, you're on the team. You're prepared to whatever role that you have. You know, you just you can go on and do the best job you can, and, and uh, you know, on the bench is certainly a completely different mindset in a way. You have to be ready to play at all times, especially when that's great. No, absolutely. And I tell you, you know, as you go through, you know, you spend some time with the Dodgers and the Blue Jays, and you go through a couple different organizations, and you end up playing independent ball in 2006 if with, with the Sioux Falls team. Tell us a little bit about, you know, you know, your experience there. You obviously put up good numbers there. And did you, did you feel coming out of that that you had, you know, one more shot left in you? Yeah, I, you know, I really did. Um, you know, in between that time, that was when I was really struggling with my shoulder, um, you know, with the whole labor deal. And so I, I, mean, I even went to Mexico. I, I think I took, a, you know, pretty much a year off. I couldn't find any work. 
I ended up going to Mexico just to, just to get a spot, and I ended up being released pretty quickly out of there once they realized I couldn't throw. Um, and then, uh, you know, went to Independent Ball, and it, it was it was a lot of fun. You know, I think I, uh, I met a lot of good people out there, people I still keep in contact with. And once I got down that season, I got a job with Florida, um, you know, to come back into AAA with them and uh, play out in Albuquerque. And had a good year, and I, I believe I was 30 years old at the time. Um, so I was playing well, getting close to 400 within the first two months, and then uh, that was the time when Florida had a lot of young prospects like Ricky Rick Abercrombie, Greg Carroll, uh, Eric Reese. So they had a lot of outfield guys, and I think that couple guys got called up, and that's why I kind of got pushed out. But then I'm the extra guy. You know, back to the, the fourth or fifth outfielder, but now in Triple H on that. But at that point, I was kind of like, you know what, this is, and for the first time in my career, I got put on the fan of DL, um, which I, I'm sure you know about that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, so once that happened, I was like, okay, there's, there's no future with this organization. Um, so I ended up got, got traded to the Mets, um, ended up uh, with New Orleans. In Triple A, actually for the first time in my career, went to a high league playoff, um, and then uh, so from there, you know, I, I really didn't think I was going to get back to the big leagues with those teams. Uh, but then I signed a minor league deal with the Angels, and I guess it was 2008. Um, and then so I went to spring training with them. My arm was still having issues. Uh, in a sense, it was really taking me a long time to build arm strength, and I had a hamstring, I got pink eye in spring training, and they ended up releasing me, you know, about a week before um, spring training ended. You know, and I was planning on going to Salt Lake um, and doing, you know, having a chance to get up back, back up there with the Angels. Um, but essentially, you know, the team that released me is the team that hired me five years later. Now, <laughs> it's kind of ironic there, huh? Yeah, it really, it really is ironic, so it's, you know, I look at it as it all, all the stuff happened for a reason. Uh, the adversity that I experienced, you know, it just made me a better person. And we have something that I can with my four kids. You know, they can learn from as well. And, uh, yeah, I mean, just, you just kind of move past those, those experiences to, uh, to, to build a better part of the next, your, you know, life after your career. All right, Chad, listen, thanks for having some time. A lot of good stuff there, man. I appreciate you uh, giving me a couple minutes, man. Yeah, no question about it, man. So there it is, the interview with Chad Hermanson, former outfielder for the Pirates, among other teams. Of course, now a scout for the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim. But John Pielli, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. We're going to take our first break of the program. We'll be back with a lot more stuff going on after this. Are you searching for something different for your child's education? Consider Atlantic Christian School, where faith and quality education meet. Listen to what one of our students has to say about their experience at ACS. Atlantic Christian School is a place where teachers and students work together, creating a caring environment to learn and study based on the truth of the Word of God. Atlantic Christian is a wonderful school for your child to go to because the school has much to offer in training students to use their specific talents God has given them. 
This school may be small in size, but their heart makes it unique and loving to any student that wishes to attend. Come learn about our new lower tuition rates at our open house every Wednesday from 8 a.m. to 1 p.m. at 391 Zion Road in Egg Harbor Township. Or enroll today. Visit us on the web at acseht.org or call 653-1199. Atlantic Christian School, where character, Christ, and community count. MTR. Not sure what you want to eat? An omelet works anytime. How about a golden brown waffle with warm syrup? Augie's Omelet Waffle House and Grill is an Ocean City tradition since 1991. Visit our website at augiesocnj.com or give us a call 609-391-0222. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter and come visit us in person at 9th Street and Atlantic Avenues just steps off the famous Ocean City Boardwalk. Also visit Augie's Doggies in Smithville, 609-391-0222 and augiesocnj.com. More than omelets, breakfast, and brunch, it's happiness served on a platter. Case is empty, blah. Go ahead, laugh. Laugh all you want. But the fact of the matter is, this is, this is the setting for the greatest story ever told, okay? Case is empty, blah. Bases empty blog. Bases empty blog. Bases empty blog. Bases empty blog. Oh, yeah. Welcome back. John Pielli, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network, hour one of the program. And we're going to touch a little bit about the World Series in a little bit. And, you know, the unfortunate thing, and I've said this before about the show, being recorded earlier in the week and playing Saturday morning, of course, again, Saturday afternoon and then Sunday night um, is, is the fact that, you know, I can't tell you what's going on Saturday morning because, you know, there's a couple days missing. So we'll touch on the World Series a little bit and what I think about what's going on now and what I think will have happened by the time the show airs on Saturday in a little bit. But I do want to, you know, get into something that's going on with the World Series. And, of course, the Red Sox got a pitcher who pitched in game number three and will probably again pitch in game number seven if the series ends up going that far, and that's Jake Peavy. And he was acquired in a trade this past season with the Detroit Tigers, but also involved in that trade was the Chicago White Sox, of course, who sent Peavy over to the Boston Red Sox, a three-team deal which involved a total of seven players. And you know, I wanted to break this down from a certain perspective because it's pretty easy to say whenever there's a three-way trade in Major League Baseball that you know you say, hey, this team got this, this team got this, and this team got this. But you know, I think there's another way you could also break it down and say, all right, well, this player went here in exchange for this. For example, the simple way you could look at the trade is say the Red Sox got Jake Peavy, the Tigers got Jose Iglesias, and the White Sox got Avacio Garcia and three prospects from the Boston Red Sox in the same deal. Now, I, I want to look at it another way and say, all right, well, what did the White Sox give up for Jake Peavy? Because you look at it like this, you know, you could say, what did the Tigers give up to get Jose Iglesias and what did the White Sox give up of course to get the prospects that they ended up getting so you know looking at it like this way and I'll mention a couple of the players that were also involved in the deal there was a uh, Cletus Rondon who was a shortstop prospect in the Boston organization and two pitchers uh, Francellus Montes and Jeffrey Wendelkin 
Uh, so two pitchers and a shortstop ended up going to the White Sox in addition to Garcia. So the way the way you want to look at it, you got to say, all right, well, to get Peavy, what did the Boston Red Sox give up? They gave up four players. They gave up Iglesias, who went to the Tigers, and of course, Rondon, Montres, and Wendell Ken, who went to the White Sox. Now, what did the Tigers do? The Tigers were the simple, you know, kind of the intermediary in this trade because, you know, they, they end up getting a player in exchange for two players. They end up picking up Jose Iglesias in exchange for Garcia, who went to the White Sox, and Brian Villarreal, who ended up going to the Red Sox in his deal. So Iglesias for Garcia and Villarreal. Now, the, the White Sox dealt PV for Garcia, Rondon, Montes, and Wendell Ken. Now, the difference, obviously, is what did Boston give up? They gave up Iglesias, Rondon, Montes, and Wendelkin, and the White Sox got Garcia, Rondon, Montes, and Wendelkin. So, you know, you look at, you know, you kind of base the deal off of that and say, what is better? Well, you know, Iglesias is probably and maybe a proven to this point a better overall player than Avacio Garcia. Now, Avacio Garcia probably has a bigger upside, so I think that that part of the deal is really hard to figure out. You know, the question is, did the, Go- did the Boston Red Sox give up more than what the White Sox got in return? And it's interesting to see because that's obviously going to turn on what player becomes more productive, Iglesias or Garcia. And I think it's interesting to see. I think Avacio Garcia has a chance to be a pretty good outfielder for the Chicago White Sox if he becomes a guy that they could kind of count on to be a middle of the order type of presence. You know, you know, he could play some defense. You know, he could hit a little bit. He's been in the minors the last couple of years, made a little bit of an impact on the 2012 Tigers as they made their way into the postseason. But Iglesias is a little more established. Iglesias is a guy who, you know, looks like he's going to be the everyday shortstop for the Detroit Tigers for the future. So the question is, and this is a question that can't really be answered, did the Red Sox give up more than what the White Sox got in return? Because the White Sox part of this deal, obviously, is to pick up a couple prospects, get themselves better for the future. Uh, A guy like Jake Peavy, who had probably little to no value for the White Sox the way they were going last year. And, you know, you know they end up picking up some, some decent players. And the question is going to be, what do you get out of Garcia? What do you get out of some of these other guys? And, you know, what's it, what's, it's going to be interesting to see what, ha- what becomes of the younger players in this deal. Because you look at Rondon for a second, a 19-year-old shortstop who struggled to hit at the low levels of the minor leagues. He finished off by hitting 202 in 29 games at Class A Kannapolis in the White Sox system. Montes is a 20-year-old right-hand pitcher who's a starter and has a plus fastball and a high K percentage. He spent the whole season in, in A ball going 5-11, 543 ERA, 127 strikeouts, and 111 innings pitched. And Wendell Kent, a right-hand pitcher who's always been a reliever, he moved up to high A Winston-Salem after the White Sox acquired him. So if the White Sox get a contribution from all four players they added, they could get the best of this entire trade. The Detroit Tigers gave up the least, but also got Iglesias, who has not proved that you know he's a good enough hitter to be an everyday player. So the Tigers could go with him going forward, but may not necessarily be a victor 
in this thing because, you know, Iglesias may not be the starting shortstop down the road. He could be, but he very well may not be. But, you know, from the Red Sox perspective, you could obviously make a case that the Boston Red Sox were the better the beneficiaries of this trade. Not only did they get Jake Peavy for this year, but he is signed for the 2014 season. And if Peavy has something left, and he's proven this season and last year as well that he does, if he gives the Red Sox a solid 2015 season, that's obviously a part of a reason you could say the Red Sox are victors in this. But the most important part is the Red Sox, you know, if they have already won the World Series by the time this game is going on, then they got a pitcher that helped them get to the promised land, that got to, you know, the big game to win the World Series. And you mentioned some other guys, you know, John Lackey, who was also on the Boston Red Sox. You know, everybody talks about how bad his contract is. The five-year, you know, 70-plus million dollar contract that he signed with the Boston Red Sox didn't seem like it was going too well in the first two seasons. The Boston Red Sox fans were booing him, out of, you know, out of town. They didn't want him in Fenway Park. And then, of course, he ends up with the Tommy John surgery, which, you know, becomes even more devastating as the Boston Red Sox didn't have him throughout the 2012 season. But Lackey has pitched very well this year despite the 10 and 13 record pitched very well in the games in the playoffs and if the Red Sox become World Series champions then that signing that five-year contract that they signed John Lackey to becomes a very good signing and you look at the fact that you know the trade for Jake Peavy could be viewed as the same way if the Red Sox are World Series champions then the trade to get Peavy from the White Sox was a very good deal regardless of how any of these players turn out regardless of how Iglesias ends up helping the Tigers down the road and obviously regardless of how the three young players end up moving their way up through the Chicago White Sox system now listen the future probably looks better for the White Sox I think if it any one of these three players end up becoming a, a major league a regular in some way, shape, or form, a reliever, a starter, or you know, an everyday shortstop or an infielder in some sorts, obviously the White Sox can look better. Garcia is the guy that the White Sox are going to see uh, on the immediate level. He's got a very good chance of being the everyday right fielder for the Chicago White Sox. Of course, they traded Alex Rios to the uh, Texas Rangers with a year remaining on his contract. So it's very interesting to see how it, it'll, it'll turn out. But, you know, essentially the Tigers wanted a shortstop, somebody to play there every day while Jahani Peralta was serving his 50-game suspension. And with Peralta hitting free agency, there's a, you know, a, probably just a small chance that the Tigers will re-sign him next year. So I think the Tigers are happy because they will go with Iglesias. Iglesias showed in the postseason that he is a very good glove and obviously he's going to make some big plays. Did make a couple mistakes, though. But, you know, listen, everybody makes mistakes. It's not, you know, it's not a you know perfect science. You're not going to make every single play. But, you know, it's, it's, it's going to be interesting to see in regards, particularly with the White Sox, because of ACL Garcia, like I mentioned before, was a guy that that the Tigers were pretty high on. They put him up, you know, at the major league level towards the end of the 2012 season, put him on their postseason roster, and he got a couple big hits in a couple of the postseason series as the Tigers were trying to make their way to win, you know, win the World Series, end up falling a little short, losing to the San Francisco Giants that year. But, uh, you know, Garcia was a guy that they liked, but obviously hadn't progressed to the point where they trusted him to be an everyday player. And remember some of the guys that the Detroit Tigers were running out there to play left field. You know, Andy Dirks, Don Kelly, 
you know, aren't necessarily, uh, you know, guaranteed guys that are going to be able to produce. They produce okay, but weren't phenomenal, you know, offensive players. You know, Torrey Hunter, who they signed to play right field, obviously no, none of those players would consider themselves in the same league as a Torrey Hunter. Avacio Garcia has that ability. He's going to grow as a player. He should be able to put up, you know, 2080 numbers as a power hitter with a little bit of speed and obviously a good defender. And if the White Sox can get this out of the deal, I think this will be the beginning to to Chicago saying that, hey, we got something good for Jake Peavy. And obviously the three young players that the Red Sox threw in, none of them were extremely highly touted prospects. None of them were guys that you could have said were going to be no doubt can't miss guys. But as they go through the system, you know, the White Sox will be will be getting themselves better over the next couple of years. Of course, they made the big signing of Jose Obreu, who's going to play first base for them with Paul Canerco probably retiring. So, you know, as, as the White Sox get better over the next couple of years, and you expect them to, you expect them to, to maybe, be, you know, be a little bit challenged this year. And of course, if Abreu could provide a spark, they might be a little better sooner. But a couple of years down the road, if one or two of these guys that come from the Jake Peavy deal can, can end up helping them in addition to Garcia, this could turn out to be a, a you know an unbelievable victory for, for the Chicago White Sox. But listen, the Red Sox, if they win the World Series with Peavy, win in their own way. If, if the Tigers with Iglesias over the next couple of years have their everyday shortstop, then the Tigers can win. And of course, the White Sox have a chance to win you know, on multiple fronts with the four players that they end up in this deal. So you know, I think it's some, sometimes you look at a three-way deal, you say, hey, this team gets this, this team gets this, and this team gets this. Well, you know, you have to look at, you know, factor in what you end up giving up to to make a trade like this work. And, you know, just a recap, the you know, Jake Peavy traded to the Red Sox for uh, Jose Iglesias, Rondon, Montres, and Wendelkin. The Tigers picked up Iglesias for Garcia and Villarreal. And, of course, the White Sox ended up trading Peavy for Garcia, Rondon, Montres, and Wendelkin. So you got to look at it from that perspective. In a three-way trade, there's three separate deals that you have to look at. And in the end, I think this is a chance that all three teams could win in the end here. And I think it's very, very good to say. John Pielli, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. And obviously, while we're talking about the Boston Red Sox, we could be talking about the World Series champion Boston Red Sox, who at the time of the recording of this program were up three games to two through five games in the best of seven series. Of course, game six played in Boston, game seven if necessary in Boston. And it's very interesting to see how it'll turn out. Obviously, we're looking at three scenarios here, either the Red Sox winning six games, either the Red Sox winning seven games, or the St. Louis Cardinals winning in seven games. So it's interesting to see how it'll happen. Obviously, Michael Waka, who would have pitched game six for the St. Louis Cardinals, has had a phenomenal postseason. And you look at his stock going up. A guy that was drafted in the 2012 draft by the St. Louis Cardinals. And obviously, you look at the organization and everything they've done with their ability to draft and bring in a bunch of young players that continuously help at the major league level. And Waka, right now, is the standout in the entire 2012 draft class. And obviously, there's a handful of players, a handful of high-profile players that haven't made their major league debut yet and are on their way to. They haven't necessarily been considered bust yet. And we're only, we're only looking a year removed. I mean, once the season started in 2013, the 2012 draft class was the most recent draft class. Obviously, the 2013 draft happened during the season, but, you know, Waka, for his ability to come up there and help the Cardinals in August and September and help them in the postseason is a big step for him. And, he, he, you know, obviously a step towards him becoming a guy that could be the St. Louis Cardinals ace. And I think you look down the road in 2014 with 
uh, Adam Wainwright and Waka as your one-two in your rotation some way, shape, or form. Joe Kelly and Shelby Miller have certainly developed Kelly more towards the end of the season and the postseason, and Miller had a phenomenal regular season. Shelby Miller is a guy that hasn't been used in the entire postseason by the St. Louis Cardinals as a starter, yet he put up great numbers through the entire season. It wasn't a situation where he struggled in September. The Cardinals just decided to go with the hotter hands with Kelly and Waka. But if you look at the four-headed monster that could possibly develop with the St. Louis Cardinals going forward with Waka and Kelly and Wainwright and Shelby Miller, that, that leaves a fifth starter spot that could be open for a couple other guys. And you look at you know Lance Lynn, who's been a, a staple in the rotation over the last couple of years. Chris Carpenter, remember, you know, missed this whole season with, the, you know, with, with his arm issues. You know, will probably be back next year. I think if he wants to pitch, the St. Louis Cardinals will bring him back. And he also got Jaime Garcia, a guy who missed this whole season with Tommy John surgery and should be back and ready to pitch next season. So the Cardinals are going to have a dearth of starting pitching. And something we didn't really talk about, we talked about a lot of other teams' strength in their starting rotation. And we talked a little bit about the strength that the St. Louis Cardinals brought to the table with Waka and Kelly joining Wainwright as being top starters for the St. Louis Cardinals. But you know, going into next year, you add Miller to the mix you add Lynn who has been there in addition to a Carpenter and a Garcia and all of a sudden the St. Louis Cardinals you know are up there you know if you consider them maybe a shed below what the Detroit Tigers have with Clayton Kershaw and Zach Greinke and Hunjin Ryu but I'll tell you one through five I would probably take them up there with just about anybody and that even includes the Detroit Tigers and the Tigers obviously got a great rotation in their own right, led by Justin Verlander and Annabelle Sanchez and Max Scherzer, who will probably win the Cy Young this year. And, of course, Doug Fister and Rick Porcello. But I like the Cardinals' rotation going forward, and I'm very curious and anxious to see what they end up doing for their number five spot in their rotation next year because I think one through four is set. It's going to be Wainwright, Waka, Kelly, Miller. Who's going to be the number five guy? Do they trade Lance Lynn? Do they go with Lance Lynn as their number fifth starter? He's done a pretty good job over the last two years. Do they bring back Chris Carpenter? Obviously, if they do, he's going to be the number five guy. Obviously, probably the best number five starter if he's healthy and pitching than any other team could have in Major League Baseball. And, of course, Jaime Garcia, who over the last couple of years has established himself as a pretty good lefty. And, you know, the Cardinals don't have a lefty starting pitcher right now. Garcia could obviously fit that build. So I like the way the Cardinals' rotation looks for next season going into 2014. But John Pielli, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. Take our second break of this hour. Be back finishing up after this. Hey, guys and gals. Want to have a great time dining out while watching your favorite sport on HGTV? Then come on down to Hooters of Princeton, New Jersey, located on Route 1 South in Trenton in the Mercer Mall. Hi, I'm Deja. And I'm Corey. These are great deals all week bound to whet your appetite and satisfy your hunger. Check out our Monday Mondays where you can have a delicious cheeseburger and fries for only $6.99. On Tuesdays, we have all-you-can-eat wings all day. Just $12.99 per person or $10.99 for boneless. On Wednesdays, you can get 10 boneless wings and an order of fries for just $6.99. On Saturday, kids eat free for every meal ordered by an accompanying adult and the meals are served on Frisbee. We have half-priced appetizers from 10 p.m. until close every day. You can then enjoy your cold draft beer with our mouth-watering crab clusters for only $5. Remember, we are located in Trenton on Route 1 South in the Mercer Mall, just south of Quaker Bridge Road. For any information, call us at 609-520-WAIN. 
That's 609-520-9464. So come on in and watch your favorite football team while having a great meal, served up by the nicest and the hottest girls anywhere. Hope to see you there. I'm Karen Siaska Zeltman from Italian Hour. When my car needs service, I take it to Jonathan's Complete Car Care. Jonathan's Complete Car Care is the best for auto repairs, tires, diagnostics, and tune-ups. You can depend on Jonathan's for the best service at prices you can afford. Give Jonathan's Complete Car Care a call, 609-601-6460. They work hard to give you the service you need. Jonathan's Complete Car Care works with many vehicles, including Mercedes-Benz, BMW, Volvo, Volkswagen, and Audi. Make Jonathan's Complete Car Care the company you keep. 609-601-6460. Call today for a free estimate or visit. Find us on the web at jonathanscompletecarcare.com and like us on Facebook and find us on Twitter. Listening to MTR Radio, powered by MTRmedia.com. Welcome back, John Pielli, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. We're going to finish off this hour by playing an interview I recorded with former Mets minor league infielder Jake Eichste. And Eichste was uh, you know, up in spring training in 2008. I remember watching a game, seeing him come up with a big hit. You know, it came from the minor league camp over to the major league camp. A big uh, two-run double, which led the Mets to a victory over the Detroit Tigers. And Freddie Dulce was the pitcher for the Tigers. So, you know, a lot of interesting things to get into. And, of course, Eichste, you know, had a nice minor league career, ends up playing some independent ball. Uh, so enjoy this interview with former Mets minor league infielder Jake Eichstein. Good afternoon. This is John Pielli. I'm here with former infielder in the New York Mets organization, Jake Eichstein. Jake, what's going on, man? Not a whole lot. All right, man, listen, uh, you know, talk a little bit about, you know, you were drafted in the 2006 draft. You know, you end up going through the Mets system for a little bit. Tell us a little bit about, you know, the beginning, being drafted, and then your work through the minor league system. Well, um, I played four years in the state, and uh, you know, I was talking to a few people, um, two different teams, and you know, just go around, taking all the way to go in, um, didn't go the first day, and then I uh, was listening to their drafts on the radio, on the internet, I guess, and didn't go at the beginning of the second day, and so I thought, well, man, I just sitting around here listening, and just wait until my dad and my brother were pulling concrete, actually. Um, and so I went and, and, and helped them for a while, and then I got a phone call from my scouts calling and just telling me, hey, he's been drafted. They're playing that ground by the New York Mets, and <laughs> I was a dumb fan growing up. I know the Mets were, so <laughs> I did, but, you know, it was just quite a, it was a pretty exciting time, and um, so... You know, from there, they sent me to uh, Port St. Lucie, Florida for a mini camp, and then from there to 
in New York, so from a small town in uh, Central Illinois to New York City was quite a culture shock, but it was, it was yeah, a good experience. Yeah, absolutely. Now, you know, of course, you know, you went you went through the Mets system a little bit. You ended up playing uh, playing a lot of shortstops. I, I guess you were you were pretty much a shortstop when you were drafted, right? Yes, yes, I was in college. All right. Now, how how did you how did you think the transition was from each level to each level? You you, you play, of course, in uh, you know short season Brooklyn and then Savannah and St. Lucie, and then you end up going up to Binghamton. What were the what were the biggest adjustments you had to make going from each level? Um. Well, right off the bat, Brooklyn was, was um, just big league atmosphere. Um, you know, as far as you know, my first game, was 10,000 people there. Um, and for the Mets and that organization, Brooklyn is a, a high-priority team. Uh, so, they, you know, they'll win there, they'll do whatever it takes to win, whether they bring guys, you know, from, from higher levels down. And um, so that's... It was it was quite an experience, especially in the beginning, uh, right off the bat. Um, you know, just opening night, you know, starting a short stop and being able to experience that. You know, and then as far as moving up different levels and the difference, um, you know, just the game speeds up. Just better players. Um, you know, people. You know. Controlling the ball as far as pitchers are real, but the strikes are more consistently. So the atmosphere and fans and this intensity, right off the bat in Brooklyn, probably was, was the most intense. Yeah, and I'm sure playing, you know, playing in Brooklyn, it kind of gave you a little extra motivation. You know, you, you know, you go to, you know, a, a game down there, and I'm sure a lot of the road games probably didn't didn't seat as many uh, as many people as you did when you played, uh, you know, home games in Brooklyn. Yeah, yeah, no, you're right. Um, for the most part, the whole week was really good as far as attendance. Staten Island was good. Um, you know, but then you go to Oneonta and there's not many people there. Yeah. It was up in the, up in the mountain in the, in the British. But uh, it, was, it was, yeah, it was, a, it was a really good experience. Now, as, as you ended up, you know, moving moving through the chain a little bit, you started to play at different positions. You know, you played a little second, you played a little third. Um, you know, did you still, you know, consider yourself a shortstop at the time, or you just kind of, you know, learn learn the versatility and kind of just play wherever? see one position more difficult to play? Like I know you play like a little bit of first base too, but was was there any one of those positions that you felt was a little more difficult than the others? Um I think for me third was probably the hardest. Um just just because of reaction time and you're subject to, you know, the different hops you get sometimes you just have to kinda of eat them up or you, know, you can't really pick your half like you can at shortstop or second. Um, you know, first is, you know, I didn't play a whole lot of first. 
before I got the mental evaluation, and it was tougher than I thought it was. Uh, you know, just knowing where to be and, and cut offs and, and that kind of that kind of stuff. So, you know, it was tricky, but I would say third was probably the hardest for me. And once again, John Fiala here with former Mets infielder, uh, Mets minor league infielder Jake Ixty. Now, you know, after 2009, you end up uh, playing some independent ball in uh, Rockford and Camden. Tell us a little bit about, you know, your experience there and, you know, uh, you know how, how you felt things went playing in independent ball. Well, it went good. Um, I didn't think I'd ever play independent ball. I just, you know, I felt like it was for guys that couldn't give it up. And it was kind of ironic because I, I was released at spring training and I thought, well, it worked out all off season. I might as well just finish out the year. And so I did. Um, and it went well. It was, I was able to play every day and it was good to do that again and, and just kind of be my own player and, and um, you know, kind of do my own thing. And that was kind of relaxing and, and enjoyable, you know, in that regard. And then I ended up getting picked up by the Royals after the season. And so, you know, once again, kind of did that, trained again, and and then um, just kind of did it over again. So it was, uh, it was a good experience, better than I had thought. There was a lot better competition than I thought it would be. So it was surprising. Yeah, now, you know, as you're, as you're down there, you end up putting up some pretty good numbers. You kind of, I'm sure, you know, getting a chance to play every day, you probably felt more in your element and kind of got to pretty much show the player that you probably always thought you would be, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I was able to really learn through failing, um, you know, and just play consistently. And when you get it back, you make adjustments and learn what makes you tick as a player. And so that was big, you know, just being able to get that. But, you know, I understand how it goes. Just we need 50 new guys come in every year and affiliate ball and very, very competitive. And uh, it's a business as well. So, you know, I, I totally understand how that goes and, and how everything kind of shook out. But it was good to be able to get out there and get it back consistently and and, uh, you know, just learn what made me successful as a hitter. Yeah, no question about it. Now, you know, back in, uh, you know, 2008, you end up uh, getting a little cup of coffee in uh, Mets spring training towards the end. And, uh, you know, a particular day, March 16, 2008, you end up hitting a, a two-run double against the Tigers, and Freddie Dulce leads the Mets to a, a spring training win there. You, you remember that day? And if so, you know, what was going through your mind when you came up with that big hit? Yeah, absolutely. Well, it was it was my um, you know first at bat in big league i So it was obviously I was I think even before you know the tie game I believe and it was around third and out and, and I was playing second. I got ground ball. You know I was able to hold it. So I was that was nervous being out there. Um, but you know it's something that you always you know you work hard for, you prepare for, and. Um, you know, so just to be in that situation, it's the same game. <laughs> it's just you have to tell yourself that, just to understand that it, you just end up playing line six with yourself. You know, if you don't, but uh, it was just, it was a pretty cool opportunity just getting that opportunity, and then um, they were, you know, come through. 
Nah, I'll tell you, man, I actually remember being down there. I was actually down in Florida. I remember I remember that game. That's why I, why I bring it up, man. I think I thought, you know, it was a you know, nice nice day for you, nice opportunity, and, you know, great great to see it come through in a big spot, man. Yeah, well, thank you. I appreciate it. You know, I actually had seen uh, the video you know, a couple months ago, and I'm back some memories. All right, listen, Jake, I want to thank you for having some time, man. appreciate you giving me a couple minutes, and you know, best of luck to you. Absolutely, John. Best of luck to you.